Good morning. I always, always feel uncomfortable at the end of those videos because there's this epic music and then the lights come on and then I'm just kind of up here and I'm like, hey, how are you? You know, it's this buildup and this very anticlimactic ending, which is, uh, which is me, right? So um, glad you guys are here this morning. Um, weather's fantastic outside today, right? Thank God for, yeah, I hate the rain. Um, Okay, so we'll get started here in a second. Um, something to talk to you guys about a little bit this morning, kind of an announcement, and it's a good announcement. It's exciting. It's not anything bad, uh, but something we needed to talk to you, you, you guys about before we get into the message is this, and, and hopefully you'll be excited about this. It's for a good reason. Um, starting March 18th and 19th, that's a Saturday and Sunday, starting in the middle of March, uh, we're gonna be adding a fifth service on the weekend. Now, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Uh, here's how that will affect you guys, is we are not just tacking it on. Uh, on Sundays, we're gonna have to shift around times, which is, a, which is a pretty big deal. So it will no longer be five, seven, nine, and 11, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we'll still do the five and the seven, starting March 18th and 19th, and we'll announce this a lot so everyone knows. Sunday will move to eight, 10, and 12. And so there'll be three different, <laughs> again, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. But we'll shift it around to those three times. Now, the reason why we are doing that, uh, there's several reasons why we decided to do that. We prayed about it a lot, thought about it a lot. Uh, this is a great problem. The, these services on Sunday, all four of our services, quite frankly, are very, very full. And it's actually probably a little low this morning because of the rain, but, but last week there was something like almost 2,000 people just at the nine o'clock service. Uh, yes, that's a wonderful thing. <laughs> it also has kept me from sleeping. Uh, so it's a great problem to have. It's, it's the best problem for a church to have. And if you're new here, something that, that I feel led to say is we are not against growth. I'm not against big church. I'm against how churches get big sometimes and how they attract people. But fortunately, we have never used any gimmicks. We have never advertised. We have never tried to be manipulative. What has drawn so many people to this church, I'm not saying this out of false humility, is this. Uh, the fact that we teach through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I feel like is drawing a lot of people here. And it has for the last 14 years. So, um, we had record amounts of people besides Easter weekend, last weekend at all four of our campuses. And so at this campus and our Cannon County campus, we're gonna have to go to five services. And, um, and sometimes people are critical of big churches and they say, well, it's just all about the numbers to you guys. Well, let me pitch it this way. Last week, we had more people than we ever had heard the gospel of John. We had 7,300 people last weekend hear the gospel of John. And and so when people say, well, is it about numbers? Well, in some respect, yes. We want more people to go to heaven and less people to go to hell. So again, 7,300 people heard last weekend that Jesus is God. We talked about Matthew chapter one, the first half of it. So we're not against growth. We just wanna make sure that we grow without compromising our integrity and without compromising teaching the word of God. All that being said, um, we need 250 more volunteers soon. So it takes about 1,200 people to make this campus run every single weekend, volunteers. And so we will need 250 more of you to, to, to step up. 
And that means in parking, that means driving buses. We have to buy a couple of more buses because we don't have enough to shuttle everyone around. We need help with kids. And we, one of the things, I gotta make this quick, we gotta get, gotta get to the word. One of the things that we looked at was turning the sanctuary a different direction. And if we do that, we can actually get about 400 more chairs in this room. Uh, the problem with that though is that doesn't solve our issue with children. That doesn't solve our issue with parking. So adding this fifth service, we, we do all that and we get more space in every area and we do it essentially for free, right? It doesn't cost us anything to do that. So, but, but that means we need a lot more, we need a lot more help, a lot more people stepping up and, and serving. So the last thing is this, just please be patient with us. We're excited about it. Um, I'm excited to see what God is doing, not just here, but listen, in Cannon County last week, uh, Woodbury only has 2,100 people that live there. 750 of those were at our campus last weekend in Woodbury. That is, that is absolutely amazing. That's miraculous. That's a third of the whole town was, was in service there and uh, fantastic. So anyways, be patient with us. Um, if you know anyone that has any 15-passenger vans, we'll buy them. You don't have to donate. We just can't find any. So uh, please let us know if you have a CDL. We have a 25-passenger van that you have to have a CDL to drive. If you want to help us with that, we need help with that. So, um, yeah, just thank you guys. So, um, all right, let's get into the Word, because I always get nervous when I talk about anything except for this. I'm very confident when we're in this. Outside of that, I'm a complete basket case. So, <laughs> last week we started the Gospel of John. If you have never heard this before, it is a book of the Bible written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples, uh, one of his inner circle, so one of Jesus's three best friends, essentially, wrote this book of the Bible, written in the 80s, the original 80s, in the mid-80s, the first century, written primarily to people who did not have an idea of who the true God was. So mostly Romans and Greeks. And so I said this last week, there are two kinds of people in the Bible. There are Jews, and then there are everyone else. And most of us fall into the everyone else category. So this book of the Bible was written more for people like us to, to introduce us to who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and kind of work us through that. One of the things we talked about last week and one of the questions we addressed was this, who is Jesus? We did chapter one, but we only did about a third of it and maybe a little bit more than that. We went to verse 18. And John answers the question, who is Jesus, by saying Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh, God himself, he says, that's who Jesus is. He wasn't just a nice guy. He wasn't just someone that loved the poor and the marginalized. He was God. He is God in the flesh. Now, this weekend, <clears throat> we're going to finish up chapter 1, so starting in verse 19 and working through the rest of it. And we're not gonna fully answer this question, but we're gonna start to answer this question. So now that we know who Jesus is, we're gonna meet some disciples of Jesus in the second half of chapter one, which is going to beg the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We, we throw this term out a lot, Christian, but there's a lot of people I don't think they really know what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So we're gonna talk about that a little bit today, okay? So if you have a Bible, we're in the first book of the New Testament, or I'm sorry, the fourth book of the New Testament. We are in the first chapter of the fourth book of the New Testament, starting in verse 19. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything is in there. Everything will be on the screens behind me. 
Um, if you have a, a smartphone, which if you're over the age of six, you probably do. Everyone with a smartphone, if you have the Experience Community app, click on Sermon Notes, and the scripture and the notes are right there. And so I, I think we should be in good shape, okay? Good to see you this morning. Let's pray. Let's get into the Word of God. I hope you're encouraged. Um, I hope you're excited, and I hope that you leave here filled up after we go over this, all right? Let me pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, I love this church so much, God. I, I love the, the, the people in this church, God. I love the, the hunger and the, the desire to want to know you more, God, that is in this church, Lord. God, I, I pray this morning that you, that you bless us. And we're not talking about our numerical growth. We're not talking about a selfishness, God. But Lord, we just need your hand on us. And I pray, God, that you keep your hand on our church this morning. I pray not only for our church, we pray for every single church in our city, God, that you would keep your hand on them. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. And God, we pray for all the wonderful nonprofits that we get to work with that are also advancing your truth, Lord, and, and, and being the hands and feet to our cities, God. And ultimately, Lord, our, our, our main prayer is this, that everything we do this morning, God, that it honors you, that it brings us closer to you, God, that it is less about us and more about you, Father. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you weren't here last weekend, there are two Johns in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. One is the author who is writing it, obviously. The second one is a guy named John the Baptist, and that's the John we're about to speak about, okay? Let me read a little bit, and we'll go back and break it down. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, when you baptize, or why do you baptize, if you're not the Messiah, or Elijah, or the prophet? John says, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, so if you've never heard of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is one of the more um, colorful figures of the Bible. He was a rugged prophet. He would storm up and down through the wilderness outside of Jerusalem along the Jordan River. He wore animal skins. He ate bugs with honey on them which I guess leads us to believe if you put enough honey on anything, uh, it's edible. So he would dip bugs in honey, he would eat that, and he was telling everyone that Jesus was coming, that the Messiah was coming. And so what happened was the religious leaders in Jerusalem heard that there is some crazy guy out in the wilderness telling everyone that the Savior is coming, the Messiah is coming. So back then, the, the, the religious order and the governmental order were kind of tied together. 
It's called the Sanhedrin, and we'll talk about that a lot as we go through the Gospel of John. But this council of people sent some priests and they sent some Levites to go basically investigate what's going on, figure out what's happening. The priests were teachers of the law, the, the, the first five books of the Bible. The Levites were the ones who kind of protected the integrity of how people worshiped in the temple. They made sure that, that church was going the way that they wanted church to go. So they sent them out there to question John the Baptist. So the first thing that John says, who are you? The first thing he says, I'm not the savior. I am not the Messiah. Now that word Messiah is Hebrew. It means anointed one or savior. This is actually where we get the word Christ. The reason why we call Jesus, Jesus Christ is it means Jesus the savior, Jesus the anointed one, the blessed one by God. And so he goes, that's not me. So then they said, well, are you Elijah? Not Elijah, that was a prophet from many hundreds of years before. Are you the prophet, meaning Moses? He goes, not Moses either. And so then they're like, okay, well then who are you? So if you're reading this for the first time, one of the, the misconceptions we can have is, well, did the Jews believe in reincarnation? Did they believe their old prophets could be reincarnated into these new prophets hundreds of years later? No, that's not what they believed. What they believed is that another one of their prophets, a guy named Malachi, it's actually the last book of the Bible before you get into the New Testament. At the end of the book of Malachi, Malachi said, God is going to send an Elijah to come and, 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 and basically pave the way for the Savior, to prophesy, to have this, the same kind of voice as Elijah. So it's not that they were literally asking, are you Elijah reincarnated? They were asking, are you the one that Malachi talked about? And John the Baptist's response was interesting. After saying, I'm not Elijah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a prophet, I'm not any of those things, he quotes a guy named Isaiah, who was another prophet, and he says, I'm just someone crying out in the wilderness. And when he quotes Isaiah, it was interesting because what John was saying, even though he was trying not to say this, is he was the Elijah. He was the one that Malachi prophesied about he was the one that the Old Testament was saying was going to come and have this, this voice to introduce the Savior to everyone. But in his humility, John didn't want to think of himself like that. He didn't want to think that he was that important. The other thing is, we've already learned, John was not your conventional preacher, right? Looked very, very different than the conventional religious person. So what happened was, we are now introduced to the Pharisees. And if you've never heard of the Pharisees, they are kind of the Bible's bad guys. They're, they're kind of the antagonists of, of the story of the New Testament. That doesn't mean every single Pharisee was bad, because in fact, we're gonna meet a really good Pharisee here just in a couple of chapters, a guy named Nicodemus. But most of the Pharisees did not like Jesus. They're the ones that had him arrested. They're the ones that, that killed the majority of his disciples. They, they, they did not like the Christian movement. So they go out and they find John and they instantly have a problem with John. Why? Because the religious people didn't think he looked the part, he didn't dress appropriately, and he didn't have the proper credentials. They go out and they're like, why are you talking about the Savior? You don't look like us, and you don't have a PhD from one of our universities. What, how can you do this? 
And here's a lesson we learn from that is that John is, there's multiple examples in the Bible, but John is our first New Testament example that, that listen, it is not up to the standards of man if God uses us. It is up to God who he uses. And God has a way of using unconventional means to get his message across. So this is not saying you have to look like a freak weirdo for God to use you. What this is saying is God can use all kinds of people. He uses poor people, rich people, black people, white people, people from all kinds of different backgrounds, even people who have made atrocious mistakes like the apostle Paul. He uses all kinds of people. But us being used by God is not determined by man's view of us. It is, it is determined by God's view of us. And we see this in John the Baptist. So John, they, they, they say, well, why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing these people? And John goes, listen, I'm just baptizing with water, which meant John was doing something symbolic. There was nothing magical about the water. There was nothing magical about John. John was saying, I am baptizing people, immersing them in water to represent the fact that they have asked for God to forgive them of their sins and to show that they are anticipating the Savior. This is exactly why we get baptized today, to, to say to the world around us that we have turned our back on our sinful lifestyle we don't want to do those things anymore. And we are anticipating the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the same reason why we still get baptized today. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about baptism here as we're gonna talk about Jesus's baptism in this next part. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. He's referring to when he baptized Jesus. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that that is the Son of God. Okay, so the day after the Pharisees send a team to investigate John the Baptist, John is hanging out, Maybe he just got done baptizing some people. Maybe they're sitting around eating lunch. We don't know. He's hanging around with some of his followers, John's followers, and he sees Jesus coming towards him. And you can imagine John's grabbing their shirt and he's ruffling them up and he goes, look, 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 look. That is the savior. That is the lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. Now, here's something that's interesting and I've never really put much thought into this. John was the, the biological cousin of Jesus. So they knew each other their whole lives growing up, John and Jesus. The Bible alludes to the fact that John had no idea his cousin was the savior until he baptized his cousin. It, it alludes to the fact that he prayed and God said, look, you're gonna be baptizing people and the one that you see the Holy Spirit come down and rest upon, 
That's the one. And that's when he realized that his cousin was the savior. And so he calls him the lamb of God. That's a, that's a very interesting term. Why would you call God in the flesh? Why would you call the savior of mankind a, a lamb? Well, this imagery of the lamb starts in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 22, we see our first imagery about a lamb with, with Isaac and the almost sacrifice of Isaac and God provided a lamb to be sacrificed and said, instead. And we see this imagery of a lamb literally throughout the entire Bible all the way through Revelation. The reason why the Bible uses this imagery of a lamb is a lamb symbolizes innocence. White, a white lamb symbolizes purity, symbolizes innocence. In the Old Testament, they would make sacrifices of lambs to God. So a lamb was, was uh, indicative of, and it, was, it resembled sacrifice. Lambs obey their shepherd, the one leading them. So you see obedience in lambs. And because lambs were also used in the sacrifice of the Old Testament, it was part of the forgiveness of sin. On top of that, if you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt, uh, you guys have seen that, right? Great movie. Val Kilmer is Moses. You can't beat that. Anyways, if you ever watch these, those, those movies or if you know anything about the history of Moses and the Exodus, one of the other things about the lamb is Moses told uh, uh, the Israelites, the, the, the children of God, to put the blood of a lamb on their doors so the angel of death would pass over and, and not take their firstborn son's life. And so we see because of that imagery that the lamb represents protection, represents power. So the reason we call Jesus the Lamb of God is Jesus not only embodies all these traits, he is the perfect embodiment of all those traits. He was to be the sacrificial lamb by which not only is he innocent, that we will be made innocent, that we will be forgiven, that we will have protection and power, that all these things come from Jesus Christ. That's why we call him the Lamb of God. And so again, if you read through all the gospels, if you read through Matthew and if you read through John, the book of John would kind of lead us to believe that John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until his baptism. In Matthew, some people take the book of Matthew and, and it leads them to believe that he always knew that Jesus was the Messiah. It, it, it really doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. But what we do know is that if there was any doubt in John's mind, when John baptized Jesus, it says that Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens opened up, John heard the voice of God, he saw the Holy Spirit come down and rest on Jesus, and beyond the shadow of a doubt at that point, John knew this is the one. This is the one that I have been paving the way for, the one that I have been telling everyone to prepare themselves for. And so if you're new in here, and if you've never heard me teach on baptism, if you're not new in here, you have heard me teach on baptism 19 times. Um, but in my lessons about baptism, I always ask the question, well, why did Jesus have to get baptized? And that's actually a really, really good question. Jesus didn't need baptism. He didn't have any sin to ask for forgiveness for. He didn't have any mistakes that he needed washed away. The reason Jesus was baptized by John was to set an example for everyone who was going to follow him. Jesus said, 
This is the way God wants it to be, to fulfill all righteousness. This is what God now expects out of us. And this is kind of our most visible example of being adopted into the family of God. So here is what is neat about Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, this is, this is something very unique to our Savior, is that Jesus doesn't just tell us how to live. Jesus models for us how to live. And Jesus does not ask his followers to do anything that he hasn't already done first. And that shows a, a, a real love of the Savior for his people. He is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already modeled first. Now, here's another neat thing. It is interesting that our first recognition of Jesus is of a sacrificial lamb. Listen, I'm gonna be real careful here. I don't wanna grind an ax because no one likes that. But it is interesting to me that the first identification of the Savior was not in decadent splendor. He didn't come like, you know, rolling up in a limousine and getting out and, you know, on television with all of his gold rings. That's not how he presented himself. And Jesus did not come as a political leader. Let me pause there for a second. The reason why the, the religious people in Jesus's time, the reason why they failed to recognize the identity of the Savior, Jesus Christ, is because they had a false perception of what Jesus's job was. Listen, listen, and please don't think I'm trying to be a jerk here. The religious people in Jesus's time were waiting for a Savior to come and overthrow a liberal government. Do you hear me? They, they missed who Jesus was because they thought the Savior was gonna come and just knock the Romans out of the way. These liberal, hedonistic people, right? There are still a lot of Christians today who miss the fullness of who Jesus is because they want a political Savior. Can I, can I let you in on a secret? 99% of the time, the reason why people leave this church has nothing to do with theology. It has everything to do with political views. And they are so upset that I will not take a political stance. The reason I will not take a political stance is not because I'm afraid of politicians or running anyone off. I would dare say the number one reason that I run people off is because I will not be political. And here's the thing, where do I get that from? I get it from Jesus. Jesus didn't have to be political because all the governments of the world already rested on his shoulders. Jesus was not a Republican. He was not a Democrat. He was something far beyond the earthly systems that he came to, 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 to deal with. And so when Jesus came, he didn't come to overthrow a government. He came to overthrow the sinful heart of mankind. That's what Jesus came to do. And the reason why so many people missed who he was is they were trying to manufacture a different kind of savior than what he was. He was a sacrificial lamb. And so the sacrifice of Jesus and the obedience of the believers of Jesus cause us to be baptized in the spirit of God. Look, what John the Baptist is saying is this. He says, look, I just baptized with water. If you get baptized, we had some people get baptized last night. If you get baptized, myself or someone else, we will baptize you with water, which is a symbolic act. That's all we can do. We can baptize you as a symbol of the fact that you have repented of your sin and you're proclaiming that you're following Jesus. 
It is Jesus, because of your obedience, that baptizes you with the Spirit. Mankind cannot do that. We baptize with water, he baptizes us with the Spirit, which means we are immersed in God. We are empowered by God. We are filled by God. So John goes, I'm not doing anything miraculous. I am just a, a, another uh, a tool, another catalyst for you to be obedient and for God to truly touch, touch your heart and change you. That's what John was saying, okay? You guys are right out there. You're very quiet. Did the political stuff, uh, it was too much, right? Okay, all right. We won't have to do that third service. That will thin out the herd this weekend. We'll be okay. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed they were following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? Let me pause there for a second. I like Jesus's style. A lot throughout the gospels, Jesus asks a lot of questions that he already knows the answer to. And we see this right here. Why are you following me? He knew why. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So the Gospel of John doesn't tell us a ton about the 12 disciples. Really, none of the Gospels tell us a ton about the 12 disciples. But we are introduced to four of them in chapter one of John. So after hearing John the Baptist say for the second time that we know of, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God, Two of John's disciples heard him say it twice now, and they said, well, we're gonna stop following you and we're gonna start following him. And that's exactly what John wanted. He wanted everyone to follow Jesus. So one of the first people to follow Jesus was Andrew. And you kind of feel sorry for Andrew. In the, in the, in the course of, of, of history, Andrew is kind of one of the lesser known disciples, but he was very, very important. And one of the things that makes Andrew so important is he's the one that brought Peter. He's the one that introduced Jesus and Peter to each other. So Andrew and another guy are following Jesus. They say, hey, Jesus, where are you staying? Jesus said, come on, you can, you can hang out with me. And they were with him and it was about four o'clock and it looks like they spent the whole evening hanging out with Jesus. Andrew leaves, finds his brother, Simon, and says, we just found the Messiah. Now, when we read the Bible, we just kind of quickly move on by that. Like it was a casual conversation. But, but, but think about this. Jewish children, from the time they were old enough to comprehend what their parents were saying, Jewish children would hear that one day, God is going to send a savior. Now imagine, I don't know what Peter was doing at this time. Maybe he was still working. Maybe he just got off work. But his brother runs up and says, we found him. 
We found the one that we have been looking for our entire lives. We have found the Messiah. I mean, that must have been mind-boggling. That must have been something to really take in. And so here's the thing. Listen, this is very, very important. Andrew and Peter were good men. What that, they were not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect person, especially a man, but they were good people. And so Andrew, someone amen to that. Andrew and Peter were righteous men who were open to the things of God. They were actively looking for the answers. And we learn something important in that. When we are genuinely and sincerely looking for the truth, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter seven, you'll find it. What that means is this, if you are in here this morning and you are not sold out on this whole Christian thing yet, but if you are genuinely digging for the truth, Jesus himself said, you'll find it. You will find it if you are looking for it. The trick is then this, once we find the truth, then we have to make the decision, will we continue to live that out? Will we choose to sacrifice what we think and feel for what the truth is? And if we are willing to do that, listen, we will see instant change in our life, not perfection, and we will continue to change over time, but we will see something flip in our lives if we find the truth and give ourselves over to the truth. Now, what is interesting is the first time that Peter meets Jesus, we see an instant change. When Peter met Jesus, Jesus did something very interesting. This doesn't happen a lot when you meet people. The first time he met him, I'm sure Peter's like, well, okay, you're the Messiah, and he goes, and you're Simon, and the first thing we're gonna do is change your name. <laughs> now your name will be Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. And any of you who have studied the New Testament, you know that it takes a while for Peter to grow into being a rock. He is anything but a rock until Jesus is crucified and is resurrected. But, but here's what is beautiful about that. Jesus saw something in Peter that no one else saw. Jesus saw something in Peter that Peter probably never even saw. Jesus said, you're gonna be a rock. You're going to be something stable. You're going to be instrumental. You're going to be strong and courageous. He saw something in Peter that Peter didn't even know himself. And listen, I'm not trying to puff you up or manipulate your feelings. This is how God looks at all of you that all of us in this room, God sees us and he sees the potential that is in us. And he's essentially saying, if you would let me change your identity, let's hold on on that one for a second. Jesus says, if you would willingly let me change your identity, you can be a rock as well. And this is the interesting thing. In our day and age, we find our identity in our skin color, in our sexuality, in our gender, in how much money we have in the bank, in what nation we are from. And we lack true change because we are not finding our identity in the one thing that we are made in the image of. And so Jesus is looking at all of us saying, if you would just let me be your name, if you would just let me be your identity, you will see change. You will see, if you will just let me, I will transform you, is what Jesus is saying. This is actually connected to baptism. When we are baptized, Paul said it this way, we are no longer a Jew or a Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are one under Christ. That that is your identity. That is your name change. And so this is what happens to Peter. And we learn an interesting thing there. Now we're gonna meet two more disciples. 
The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and he told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked, that's, that's wonderful. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said about him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. <laughs> then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is a very interesting part. So Philip was called by Jesus and he went and told his friend Nathaniel, your translation may say Bartholomew and some of the other gospels say Bartholomew, same guy, Nathan and Bartholomew, same guy. And so Nathan goes, I'm sorry, Philip goes, he finds Nathan and he says, we have found the one that Moses told us about in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We have found the one that the prophets, that's the, virtually the rest of the Bible, what they told us about. It is Jesus, the son of a carpenter and masonry worker, from a small town called Nazareth. Nazareth was not just a small town. This was like the size of some of your neighborhoods, 100 to 400 people at best. And so that's why we get the response from Nate, and I call him Nate because I assume we're all gonna be friends in heaven. Can, can, anything, <laughs> can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, listen, before we judge Nathaniel on this, it's like if you're living in Tennessee, and inevitably, this is going to offend someone this weekend. <laughs> it's like if you're from Tennessee and someone goes, hey, we found God incarnate and he's from Bucksnort. <laughs> Again, seriously, you're, someone's from Bucksnort in this room and you're gonna send me an email about it. And if you were to say that though, someone from Tennessee would be like, are you sure? <laughs> They're not from Ashland City or Murfreesboro or Nashville or someplace a little bit more prestigious than Bucksnort. Nope, they're from Bucksnort. And so this, <laughs> this was kind of why Nathaniel responded, well, you sure, Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. So Philip brings Nate to Jesus. Jesus sees Nate and he says, this, is, this had to make Nathaniel feel well. The first thing Jesus says, he goes, this is a good man. This is a man with whom there is no deceit. And then Nathaniel goes, how did you know me? How do you, how do you know who I am? This is interesting, look at this. Jesus says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, when people just gloss over this and they don't do much study on this, you would think that, that, that he was literally under a fig tree and then Jesus, because he can see all things, saw him hanging out under a fig tree. That's probably not the case. Under the fig tree was a figure of speech that rabbis would use to mean that people were not only studying the Bible, but they were meditating and thinking on the Bible. So what Jesus was saying is, while you are studying the Bible today, while you are studying and meditating on the word of God, 
I saw that you were doing that. This has a much bigger implication. It's not that Nathaniel was just hanging out somewhere and Jesus saw him. It's what he was doing. He was reading the word of God. He was studying. He was meditating. His heart and his mind were, was already ready to see the Savior. And so Nathan realized who Jesus was because Jesus, Jesus could, could, could miraculously see into his life. And I love Jesus' response. He says, man, if you think of me knowing that you were studying the Bible somewhere earlier today is amazing, you're gonna see much more amazing things than that. You're gonna see some pretty phenomenal miracles. And again, what we learn is this. If we will take the time to, to not only read the word of God, not just read this, but if we will take the time to meditate on it, let it soak into us. If we will take the time to listen to God and sometimes just be still and kind of soak in that, we will see God work in our lives in miraculous ways. But it's not just absorbing the Bible or reading the Bible, but it's letting it sink into our hearts, into our minds. And if we will do that, we will see God do amazing things. Now let's take it even further. What's kind of neat is not only did Jesus see that Nathaniel was studying the word, he saw exactly what chapter of the word he was studying. How do we know that? Because Jesus says, not only will you see more miraculous things than that, you will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man, which is exactly what Jacob saw in a vision in Genesis chapter 28. So not only did Jesus see that Nathaniel was studying the word, he saw exactly what he was studying. So if you're Nathaniel, you're like, whoa, maybe he accidentally saw that I was studying the Bible and you know, he's pointing at, how could he know what I was studying? Because he's God in the flesh. And so when, when Jesus tells Nathan, you're gonna see greater things than this, you're gonna see angels descending and ascending on me, that had two meanings. One is, that Jesus will be the ladder, the connection between heaven and earth. That Jesus is the only pathway by which we connect to God. That's the first thing that meant. The second thing that he meant is he says, Nathan, you're gonna see it. You're gonna be a witness to miraculous, powerful things that I'm going to do. So not only am I the connection to God, you're gonna witness that connection. And that's pretty impressive. So today we've learned this. We have talked about five different individuals, John the Baptist, and then the four disciples we just talked about. And what we learned is all five of these men were actively seeking answers. And I've already said this, but I wanna say it to you again if you, you happen to fall into this category today. If you look and if you are sincere, you will find the answers. The question then becomes, if we're looking, we will find. The question I think for all of us in this room is, are we looking? Well, Corey, I don't know what to do with my life. Pray, read the word of God, sit and listen to God, meditate on it. Are we looking, are we digging? Corey, I feel insecure and I feel hopeless. Okay, okay, are we looking for the answer to that hopelessness? I don't feel at peace. You have a connection to the Prince of Peace. Are we looking? Are we digging? Are we listening? 
And then maybe an even greater question other than are we looking is when we find it, how will we respond to that truth? What that means is this. If you genuinely are looking for the truth, you're gonna get into this word and you're gonna pray and God is going to show you things in this word and confirm that in the, in the spirit. And some of those things may contradict how you're living right now. The question is, will we exchange our truth for the truth? Will we exchange our preferences and what we want for what God wants in his preferences? And if we are willing to do that, we become followers of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, the first thing that's interesting about this chapter, and we're gonna see it more and more, we just see a little bit of it in chapter one. We're gonna see it a lot more as the gospel of John goes on. The first thing is this, is that the followers of Jesus are diverse. And now you're probably saying, well, it was five Jewish men in chapter one. Correct. One of them looked like a wild man out in the wilderness. Some of them were fishermen. Some of them, as we go on, we will see many women come to be not just followers of Jesus, but influential followers of Jesus. We will see rich people. We will see poor people. We will see people of different nationalities and colors. In fact, the man that helps Jesus carry the cross up to be crucified was an African Jew. And so we have a black man that carries the cross with Jesus up to where Jesus is going to be crucified. We're gonna see immense diversity, which means it goes back to the point. It is not the standard of man that dictates how God uses us. It is God that dictates how we are used by him. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you look like, how much money you have in the bank. If we are submitted to following Jesus, he will use us. It doesn't even matter the mistakes we've made in the past. There is diversity in the followers of Jesus. There must also be a hunger in the followers of Jesus. What does that mean? That means that as we journey on this relationship with Jesus, we should want to be more like him. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. And that we need to be moving further away from sin and closer to Jesus. That we have a desire to live the way God wants us to live. That if we do read this word and we come across things that we're like, oh gosh, I do that. If the Bible says that that's wrong, that we want to stop doing those things. We want to become more like our savior. Who are the followers of Jesus? This leads into this next one. The followers of Jesus are obedient. Later on in the gospel of John, it even says, Jesus says this later on. I think it's in chapter 14 of John. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. In Southern Christianity, especially, we have so many people go, yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you read the word of God? Do you pray? Do you follow the, can you name the 10 commandments? As you go on and they go, well, no, I don't do any of those things. Well, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. So for us to say that we love Jesus, but we don't even have a desire to know what we're to do or not to do is a false claim. Where do you get that from? From Jesus. It's impossible to say we follow Jesus if we're not following anything that he tells us to do. We cannot, in good conscience, call ourselves Christians. A true follower of Jesus is obedient to their master. True followers of Jesus also reject pride. Why do I say that? I say that because you and I live in a culture right now that everything is about you. Everything is about you. 
You are the star of your movie and everyone else you see is just a minor character in what the, the, the movie about your life is. We, we live in such selfishness. We live in such hubris. We live in such arrogance and pride. And as we go through the gospel of John, you will see that is the complete antithesis to the example of Jesus Christ. That we are to pursue and strive for humility. As followers of Jesus, true followers of Jesus also realize they are not perfect. Now listen, the other side of that, because we take it way too far in the American church, we say things that are very, very theologically incorrect. Whenever born again Christians say, I'm just a dirty, rotten, ugly, nasty sinner. My first response is, what sin are you trying to justify in your life? If you go to Romans chapter six, you are no longer labeled a dirty, nasty, awful, rotten, broken sinner. Jesus is a savior. If he came and found you and left you in the exact same state in which he found you, he wouldn't be much of a savior. That's why Paul wrote Romans chapter six, that that used to be the way you are, but you are a new creation in Christ. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means that our imperfection is not an excuse for us to continue living in sin. That we should want to, to be more like Christ. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have times of weakness, but in that we should feel remorse. We should ask for God's forgiveness. We know that God's grace forgives us and that we ask God to help us in our imperfections, help us with our struggles. True believers know they're not perfect, but they know that they serve a perfect God and they want to be more and more like that perfect God. And if we're true followers of Jesus, you will see God work in your life. If someone comes up to me and they say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but nothing has changed. Well, then God has not had an interaction with you. There has not been a, a, a soul-saving change that has happened in your life. There is no way to come into a relationship with Jesus and remain the same. When we become true followers of Christ, we experience peace. Why? Because the Prince of Peace resides in us. We experience fulfillment and contentment and love, not 100% of the time, again, because we make mistakes and we are flawed. But these are things that should now kind of, kind of be indicative or, 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 or examples of our life, that there's a change. And not just these things internally, there should be restoration if we have given our life to Jesus, that our relationship with God is now restored. That when we give our, our life to Jesus, that not only is our relationship with God restored, but our relationship with humans start to get restored. And that there is spiritual healing 100% of the time, when we come into a relationship with Jesus, he heals our soul. He makes us white as snow. He forgives us. He reconciles our soul with God. And then there is not all the time, but with Jesus, there is physical healing that sometimes takes place. And there are mental healings that take place. Again, that is up to God's will and God's, God's provision and what he does. But we will even see sometimes physical and mental healing with Jesus. The bottom line is this. If we come into a true relationship with God, there will be a change in us. We will not be the same. You guys believe that, correct? We have to believe that. 
If we don't believe that Jesus changes us, there is no reason for you to worship Jesus. If our savior does not have the power to transform us, he's not much of a savior. We have to live in the truth that living in a relationship with him, that, 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 that living in a relationship with him changes us. It changes us. And listen, this change is not just for us. This is another downfall of the American church. We often use terminology like, man, I'm gonna go to church and I'm gonna get blessed and I'm gonna get touched and I'm gonna get healed and me, 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 me. And that is American consumerism that has penetrated the church. And again, that is antithetical to the word of God. Yes, all of us in this room need to be filled up. And I'm gonna tell you this, you don't need to just get filled up on Saturday or Sunday. Every single day of the week, you need to be asking Jesus Christ to fill you up. Fill me with your spirit every single day. But listen, we are not filled up with Jesus just to be consumers. That's the message of the world. We are filled up by Jesus Christ so that we can then go out into the world and pour that out on people who do not know Jesus yet. There is a dark, dying world outside these doors and they need what you have. They need that knowledge that you have. And is that difficult? Unless you have not been out in the world, it is exceptionally difficult. And so the Bible says that we are to go to every corner of the world. Now that doesn't mean that all of you in here are meant to go to England or Uganda or, or Switzerland or uh, I don't know, South America. That doesn't mean that you have to geographically go someplace in the world. We do need to send people out to do those things, but we are to touch our world. That means where we go buy our groceries, we have to be the light. That means that where we go get lunch, we have to be the light. Where we go to school, we have to be the light. Our workplaces, we have to be the light. The place where we work out, the place where we get coffee, that is our world. And we, as the followers of Jesus, these four men, these disciples right here, they had to make a decision. Do I live in my comfort? Do I just, just kind of live in the knowledge that I know the Savior? But what we're gonna see in the Gospel of John is Jesus is going to train these guys to go out and to take this everywhere. And this is the job of the church, to be the light of the city, Matthew chapter five, that you are to be the light of your city, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you do not have a relationship with Jesus, but you have questions, up here on my right, your left, your left, Pastor Rachel is up here. She works with our small groups, okay? If you have any questions for Rachel, she would love to talk with you. She's right up here in the corner of the stage, okay? We're not afraid of questions. We'll do our best to answer them. We'll do our best to help you out. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, there are people on both sides of the stage, okay? Anything, it doesn't matter. Please let someone pray with you. Don't, don't do it alone. Let us walk with you. The last thing is this. All the way around the room where we see a lamp on a table and then on the poles in the center and then these poles on the outside, we put some extra communion just to make it more convenient for you. There is bread and wine that represent the body and blood of Jesus. That this, this, this individual, this savior that we were talking about today, 
that as we go through the Gospel of John at the very end of it, and most of you know this, but Jesus willingly gives his life. He's crucified. He gives his body. He sheds his blood. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins. He is the sacrificial lamb of God. And all of us are welcome to take communion to remember that. Be filled up by the Spirit. If you pray today, say, God, fill me up with your Holy Spirit, but not just so I can be filled up, so I can go out and pour that out on people that I care about in my city. But everyone is welcome to take communion as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for this time together. I, Father, I pray that you touch every single person in this room. Lord, if there are non-believers in this room, I pray, God, that you, you continue to walk with them on this quest and that you help them find the answers, God. I pray, Lord, that if there are those of us in here who just need to be filled up, God, fill us up. If we need to repent for sin, if we need to address things in our life, God, fill us up. And then, Father, I pray that as we leave this place, that you will put people in our pathway that need to know you. The people who are struggling, people who may be suicidal or on the brink of divorce or hopeless or whatever the case may be, God, that we can go out and take that light, that we can love on people and introduce them to you. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.